What is truth? More than ever, the answer seems confusing, but today I'll talk about what truth isn't, what it is, and how history helps us determine it. We'll then look at how what history teaches us about truth applies to our faith. Hi, I'm Yvonne Prynne, and welcome to Bible 805, where you can learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. I'll be answering these questions about truth in our lesson today, and so let's get started on our topic, what is truth, and how historical truth relates to religious truth. Before we begin, this lesson is part of a four-part foundational series, How Truth and History Confirm That We Can Trust the Christian Bible. Though each lesson is useful on its own, all four lessons in this series go together for a complete understanding of the topic. The four lessons in this series are, number one, and that's the one we're on, What is Truth and How Historical Truth Relates to Religious Truth? Number two, how do historians determine truth? Why geography, archaeology, artifacts, and documents matter? Number three, how is the historical truth of the Bible unique? Part one. In this, we'll do a comparison of the Christian faith with the Hindu and Buddhist scriptures. And then number four, how is the historical truth of the Christian faith unique? Part two. And on this, we will compare the Bible with Muslim and Mormon scriptures. Please plan to listen to or to watch all of them for a full understanding of this topic on why we can trust the Bible and how truth and history help us in this endeavor. And by the way, I just love this series. I think you're going to really enjoy it because a lot of times history is just presented so out of context and we don't really see all the depth of it, but it's a topic that I must admit I really love and I I trust that you will enjoy this presentation also and learn quite a bit from it. So back to the question though, what is truth? More than ever, it's an important question. Fake news, conflicting viewpoints, frightening world events, how do we know what to believe? On one level, if the confusion over truth were just confined to the political realm or whatever tragedy consumes the news, one option would be to just block the media noise and hope things will get better. But we can't do that in all of life. Some areas matter much more than the latest political outrage, media event, or even the latest on the pandemic. And truth in these areas has eternal consequences. Because in the spiritual realities, truth matters. The Bible says God put eternity in our hearts. We can't help but think spiritual thoughts. So we ask questions like this. We know we'll live forever, but the question is, in which neighborhood? A neighborhood of joy or sorrow and darkness? Is there a God who watches us and will someday judge us? Where do we go for forgiveness? And how can we live this life now with peace and purpose? It's hard to find truthful answers to these questions, but we have one more problem. We start at a disadvantage because we have an enemy working against us. Finding spiritual truth is never easy because in reality, as Ephesians 6.12 tells us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And our enemy doesn't play fair. Satan masquerades as an angel of light, it tells us in the book of Second Corinthians. He is a liar and the father of lies in John eight forty four. In addition, his lies are not always obvious and may be extremely appealing. That's why we need a source outside ourselves to determine the truth. Let me say a few more things about this. When my husband and I were in charge of a large single adult ministry, I would frequently remind the ladies in particular in my ministry that if Satan appeared today, he would not be this creature with horns and a pitchfork and look really evil and horrible and all that. Oh, not at all. He would look like he just stepped off the cover of GQ magazine. He would be charming. He would be gorgeous. He would say all the seemingly wonderful things you want to hear, but they would be lies. And that is how Satan works. He never arrives on the scene and says, I'm going to tell you all these lies about God and truth and everything like that. No, we have to have a source outside ourselves to determine truth. Truth is not easy to define, but it is essential if we want to live a good life now and forever. Aldous Huxley said facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored and sometimes we just want to believe what we want to believe and you know that's just what we want to do but that doesn't change reality. Spiritual truth doesn't change because we don't want to look at it. So in our exploration of truth here's what we're going to do. We'll look at, first of all, what truth is not, because there are many false beliefs commonly accepted about truth. We'll examine each one of them. Then we will define truth, and I'll share my journey and my personal search for it. Then we'll look at how history makes finding out what is true practical, and how religious truth can be found using history. The end of this lesson will be a brief introduction of the tie between religion and history. And in the next lessons, I'll go into this whole area of religion and history and why we know religion's true because of history in a much, much more detail. Be assured, though, that this is not going to be some hard-to-understand philosophical argument. I really believe that many of the tremendously important issues and questions in life are actually quite easy to understand if you just take a little time and think them through. And that's what we will be doing. And I trust that it will be very understandable and will give you tremendous peace and confidence in your faith after we get through them. Now I do want to give credit to where credit is due and by that I want to acknowledge that a number of my definitions of what truth is and isn't come from the Baker Encyclopedia of Apologetics that was edited by Norm Geisler. Um, excellent resource. I read it. I really liked a lot in it and then I expand on different things but that is where I really got the core of what I'm going to be teaching in the next few slides. Okay, number one, truth is not, quote unquote, what works. Many believe, along with William James, that, and here's a quote by him, a statement is known to be true if it brings the right results. 
<laughs> that just isn't the case. That is not true. In life, for example, lies, cheating, adultery can all bring about short-term, seemingly positive results. But long-term tragedy often follows. In religions, to say all religions are true and all lead to the same place may accomplish a short-term goal of peace with others and may sound kind and tolerant, but ultimately it is unkind because not sharing the consequences of an action or a belief doesn't make them go away. It's like not telling someone they have cancer because you don't want to make them feel bad. But if you don't tell them the truth, Regardless of how they will feel, they can't make appropriate decisions about their future, their treatment options, what they're going to do, etc. It's similar if we assert that all religions are true. Because if they aren't, it can have eternally disastrous results for people who believe in a false religion. And I'm going to be going into specifics of different ones a little bit later. And please understand, none of my pointing out the differences is in any way to bash or demean or to think less of various religions because we are always supposed to discuss what we believe is the truth of our faith with gentleness and respect, but we still need to talk about the truth of it. Also, truth is not what is internally consistent. Now, one of the best illustrations of how this works is in the internally consistent world of science fiction movies. For example, whether it's the Marvel Universe, Star Trek, or Star Wars, their movies are based on a belief system that is internally consistent within that universe. But being consistent in a fictional world doesn't make that world true. We all know or should know, for example, that the Force in Star Wars is an invention of George Lucas and not a true spiritual entity. We know Spider-Man won't swoop in to save someone in real life, even though we totally believe he will do that in the world of the movie. But unfortunately, that is how some people evaluate a religion. A religious system might make sense internally. The stories within it might be consistent with the belief system on which it is founded. I'll be giving you some examples of this practice in the third and fourth lessons of this series on the scriptures of various kinds. And it's really important that you understand this because just because you accept what is in a certain religious system that does not make it true in the larger world of reality. But any belief system, no matter how ancient or revered, if it is not based on reality in the physical, historical world, if instead it's based on fables and legends, it makes about as much sense to trust it for eternal salvation as it would be to trust the Force. Next, truth is not what feels good. In religion, many people believe things because it makes them feel good. Or, well, I just have a really good feeling about this, you will sometimes hear people say. It really feels good to think that you can live your life however you want, and at the end of it, everyone gets to step into the light to waiting loved ones. This view is much more comforting than having to think about guilt or sin or any penalties for 
guilt and sin that come from a God who will judge our lives. But just because this belief feels good doesn't make it true. I can have wonderful positive feelings towards a huge bowl of popcorn dripping with butter and with a bag of M&Ms sprinkled in. But my positive feelings of that treat don't negate the consequences of the weight I'd gain if I ate popcorn and M&Ms as a snack every night. Feelings do not validate objective reality. Feelings don't define truth, no matter how good they feel. Next, truth is not relative. There are not different truths for different people. This is a very popular view today, that you have your truth, I have my truth, but at the core, it violates the basic logic of the law of non-contradiction. In other words, either you have two red shoes on or you don't. Either you have blue eyes or you don't. In religion, either Jesus died on the cross or he didn't. Either Jesus is God or he isn't. Truth determines the answer. So, what is truth? Before we answer, just to review what we've looked at on what truth is not. Truth is not what works. Truth is not what is internally consistent. Truth is not what feels good. Truth is not relative. There are not different truths for different people. If truth isn't these things, what is it? Truth actually has a very simple definition. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it this way, truth, the body of real things, events, and facts, the property of being in accord with fact or reality. Norm Geisler expands the definition in this way. He says truth is telling it like it is. Falsehood, then, is what does not. Falsehood tells it like it is not, misrepresenting the way things are. The intent behind the statement is irrelevant. If it lacks proper correspondence, it is false. The summary definition then is truth is what corresponds to reality. But that's not enough. How do we find out what corresponds to reality? Not just in a large philosophical sense, but what corresponds to reality in a spiritual sense? To answer that, I'd like to share my story of researching the answer to the question of truth in spiritual matters, and then I'll share conclusions that I think are useful for all of us. Here's my study, my story for what's true. This is not an apologetic or philosophical or sci-fi argument. There are lots of good resources for all of those online. And by the way, we are not in the matrix where if you're familiar with that sci-fi story, you know, where there's where reality isn't at all what we think it is. It's it's nothing like that. This is simply my story. I'm not a professional theologian or a philosopher. I'm one follower of Jesus sharing how I answered my own questions about the truth of the Christian faith with the hopes that it might help others. We all must answer ultimate questions at some time, and here's how I did it. Now, I grew up in the church. I was involved in the church. I taught Sunday school literally all my life, and I loved it. But then I got to a place where I questioned, is the Christian faith really true? I come from a strong faith background. I had a grandma, well, two grandmas on both sides who were very strong believers. But I wondered if my faith was just an emotional response to the people that I loved. Was I just the thing that I, I, and forgive me if this sounds a little bit irreverent, but I kept thinking, now am I just buying into the party line? I had to know. 
So here's what I decided to do to find out. I honestly don't know where this came from, though I believe now it was God's leading. When I questioned my faith, I decided whether it was true or not, the way to find the answer to that was to get a master's degree in history majoring on the history of the church. Now, again, it had to be God because even though I liked history, I didn't have anything against history, my undergraduate degrees were in English and education, and I never thought about doing any graduate work in history. In fact, when I decided to do this, I had to go back and get a whole major in um, history so I could go to graduate school in history. But I thought, no, I, I really wanted to do this because I thought if I could examine what was true in the Christian faith throughout all of history, if I could find out if the basic facts it claimed really happened, that that would be good evidence that it was foundationally true. I also decided to do my studies at a secular university because I didn't want what I studied to be influenced by Christian bias. I didn't think there was any way possible for me to say go to seminary or whatever and have them really tell me the truth whatever that was at the time, which I didn't know, about the history of the Christian faith. Several years later, and lots and lots of study, my hopes were not disappointed. Figuring out what was true, what corresponded to reality, what were the historical facts in the Christian faith throughout the centuries was actually really easy when you studied it objectively. I'd heard accusations that many of the events, events in the Bible didn't happen, and it was a great relief, particularly since I studied at a secular university and under a master professor who was antagonistic to Christianity, that the historical events and people I learned about in the Bible were true. The people, places, events existed as I had been taught. The evidence was clear, and I accomplished my goal on verifying the historical foundation of the Christian faith. I'll share a lot of that as we go along in other lessons, but as important as learning about the specifics of dates, people, and events, I learned something much more valuable, and that was I learned to think like a historian. Now, here's what thinking like a historian means. There's You can get into a lot more discussion of this, but basically, I learned how important it is to look at events in their historical setting to fully understand them. If we pull something completely out of context, we can think it means something else than it actually meant. And so I learned to look at events in their historical setting. I learned to look at a variety of sources and how to evaluate the validity of the source. For example, if something is published by a highly respected academic group, um, that perhaps will have more validity than something that is just self-published by someone who thinks that they've figured out something completely different. I also learned how to prevent bias in my study and to fight conclusions based on unconscious or underlying bias, either mine or others. For example, one that we run into quite a bit, and I, I talk about it in other lessons, is the whole anti-supernatural bias. If you approach any event, even that you read about in history, saying, well, the supernatural can never happen, that's really a bias. That is not an open mind to looking at the historical facts. In my teaching, Sunday school class, Bible study online, 
I found myself constantly going back to what I'd learned as a historian to evaluate the truth of what I was teaching because I do believe that history is a valid way to determine what corresponds with reality and I wanted to teach truth. I wanted to teach truthfully. In the next lesson we're going to go into detail on how historians determine truth. We're going to look at geography, archaeology, artifacts, and documents. With this importance though of history in mind, let's leave my story and let's talk about how determining historical truth ties into the search for religious truth. It seems to me, and some people might disagree, that for a religion to be true theologically, it should also have a true factual historical basis. Of course, in any religion, there are intangibles that can't be proven. At some point, it requires a leap of faith to participate in a religion, and though every religion requires a response of the will, that is more than an acknowledgement of a, say, just a list of facts. I believe that God, as the creator of reality, left us with discoverable, verifiable evidence of his work and words. Let me give you a simple, very simple example. If the Bible says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there ought to be a real Bethlehem. <laughs> and of course, there is. That's why. The Christian faith claims that it is historical and evidential. This claim is extraordinarily important and far more unique than you'd imagine, which we will discuss in lessons number three and number four in this series. Being historical and evidential means that Christianity believes it is founded on true history based on true evidence. So, how does Christianity prove that it is founded on true history and true evidence? This is such a foundational aspect of the Christian faith, we often don't even think about it, but it is key to determining if our faith is true. I'll go into how history provides true evidence for the Christian faith much more in coming lessons, and I'll be tying it to specific scriptures. But let me share a couple of examples of truth written in the Bible that are easily proven to be historical and evidential. The Bible is full of historical statements that can be externally verified when it says things like this. First of all, in the New Testament, in Luke 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And in the Old Testament, it says, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. That's in 2 Kings 18.13. Now, we'd expect these events to correspond to historical fact if, indeed, the Christian faith is based on true history. And they do! Every student of history from high school on knows who Caesar Augustus was and that he lived from 63 BC to 14 AD. We have coins and statues with his image. We have written histories about him from many resources. Historians have no doubts about his life, about what he did, about his historical decree that was the reason that Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem for Jesus' birth. Bethlehem was where it was prophesied that the Messiah would be born. And it took a decree of Rome to get a pregnant woman 
and her husband to walk the 90 brutal, dangerous, and cold miles to get there. Which, by the way, I read a, a fascinating article a while back that talked about how all these images of Jesus, of Mary riding on the donkey and uh, smiling Joseph walking beside her are just completely untrue. They were a very poor family. They couldn't afford a donkey. They had to walk the entire way through very dangerous and being in the middle of winter, cold, and really hostile country. And then by the time they get to their destination, we all know the story. The inns were full. It was not a happy trip. But it was prophesied and it happened just exactly as the Bible said it would. And you can visit Bethlehem today. I'll be talking more in the next lessons on the importance of geography, of things happening in tangible, identifiable locations. This is tremendously important. The Old Testament example that I gave you is a little more unfamiliar, but it is just as true and significant. And I realize that not as many people have heard about Sennacherib, who was an Assyrian ruler, but we have extensive historical verification about the events in his life that are also mentioned in the Bible. By the way, I I knew a pastor many years ago who had a um, a German shepherd dog named Sennacherib. I thought that was that was pretty cute. But other than that, a lot of people haven't heard of him. But Sennacherib was a very historically well-known Assyrian ruler, and he loved to talk about himself. He wrote his history and what he did on uh, one of the areas. It's called Sennacherib's Prisms, and these are these really tall clay pillars that he scattered all throughout the empire at his time that tell his story. Uh, Three of them, for example, one is the Taylor Prism in the British Museum, another one is in the Oriental Institute of Chicago, and one is in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. But um, there are these tall pillars, they've got these little teeny uh, cuneiform writing, and one of the things, there's, we have fragments of, of at least six of them, and they all have the same content, and on them one passage says of Hezekiah, As for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities, along with many smaller towns, taken in battle with my battering rams. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. This is really extraordinary historical evidence from almost 3,000 years ago that tells the Assyrian view of the biblical account in Second Chronicles 32. Archaeologists have also discovered Sennacherib's palace. It's in modern-day Mosul in Iraq, and it has additional historical verification of the facts that are talked about in the Bible, and carvings of cities, and the battering rams, and all of these things that were talked about. I'll share many, many more of these examples, which I call historical anchors, when we get into that passage and other passages as we do our tour later on through the entire Bible. Now, of course, there are limits to truth and history. We must acknowledge that just because you can trust the historical veracity of the Bible doesn't mean you automatically trust the God of the Bible. But it's a good foundation. If the truth of the Christian faith claims to be historical and evidential, we must start there. Committing to faith 
will require more than checking off a list verifying the documents and geography of, a faith, of that faith, but it shouldn't be less. If it claims to be a faith that promises to forgive sins, give meaning and purpose to life, and grant eternal salvation. That is why it's so important to understand the place of history in determining truth. And that is what we are going to talk about in the rest of this series. Remember, this lesson is part of a four-part series on how truth and history confirm that we can trust the Christian faith. And in the next lesson, we're going to look at part two, how do historians determine truth? Why geography, archaeology, artifacts, and documents matter. I promise it's going to be a very exciting lesson, and you will learn some things about biblical history that you most likely never considered before. But that's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson, related resources, and helpful links at www.bible805.com. If this podcast has been useful to you, please consider supporting it through your donations and prayers. For links on how to do that, again, check out the website, www.bible805.com. I'm Yvonne Pren, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.